you haven't closed the Bible, then just leave it open on that page. John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. Uh, if you close your Bible, it's page 1081. 1081. Uh, and there's an outline of where we're going inside the handouts that you've received. Uh, so, uh, you have that open in front of you as well. That'll be helpful. And there's a few blanks to fill in later uh, as we go along. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have been speaking to us through your word, by your spirit. We pray that you continue to do that now uh, as we think together about this passage. We pray that you help us to see you more clearly and therefore love you more. And obey and follow Jesus. We pray in this name. Now the passage that we're looking at today is a great passage, Uh, it's a short one, but it's rich, actually, rich in doctrinal significance. Uh, So we're going to work through the passage to get through the passage together this morning, Uh, we'll throw in some applications along the way, Uh, but what I want to do at the end of it is to revise, come back and show you some four doctrines that it touches, uh, and take some of our applications. Before we do that, let's look at the setting of the passage. Uh, The setting of the passage is at the Feast of Dedication. Uh, chapter 10, verse 22, talks about this Feast of Dedication. Now, what is this Feast of Dedication? The Feast of Dedication happened in December, uh, and so these uh, things that are happening in this passage are probably one or two months after what we heard last week about Jesus being the Good Shepherd. Uh, now, this Feast of Dedication comes, uh, there's a historical background to it. There was a wicked Greek ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. That's his picture there on a coin. Right? He desecrated the temple in 167 BC. He installed an idol of Zeus and is even said to have offered a pig on the altar of the temple. Now, in the midst of that, he killed many, many, many Jews in this huge, really, really terrible time. Um, this happened be- between the Old Testament and New Testament times, but it's so important that actually we have predictions of it in the book of Daniel. So even though it happened outside the time of recorded history in the Bible, it's actually in the Bible, by prophecy. Well, three years after this, the Jews managed to retake Jerusalem. They started with guerrilla warfare, you know, the story became stronger and stronger, under the leadership of a guy called Judas Maccabeus. Eventually, they drove out the Greeks and they cried, Merdeka! Yeah? Or whatever their Jewish equivalent was. They cleaned out the temple, they got rid of the idols, they rededicated it to God. And the Feast of Dedication was the time they celebrated this every year from that day onwards. And this time, Jesus is there on the Feast of Dedication. Now, where is he? Verse uh, 22, uh, sorry, verse 23 now. He is walking in the temple. And it's a particular part of the temple that is called the Colonnade of Solomon. Uh, Colonnade of Solomon is like a porch around the temple. Uh, you can see it from the picture on the slide. Let me.
Solomon of Saul. So it's in the temple. Uh, and remember, it's December. December is wet. Um, so it's winter. It's cold. Uh, and it makes sense that he's under the cover in the colonnade uh, rather than in the middle. So here we are at the feast of the rededication of the temple in the temple itself. Uh, and Jesus is walking around there, and verse 24, the Jews gathered around him. They kind of like encircle him. They want answers from him uh, uh, before he goes away. And what do they say to him? Verse 24, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, it's not as if they don't know what Jesus thinks about himself, is it? They are trying to make him say it. He has actually told them, hasn't he? He's told them over and over again, uh, in different ways. But he's done it always in very clever ways that force you to think about what he said in light of the Old Testament to understand. Speaking plainly, he is all even, in fact, actually he's already uh, claimed to be Yahweh, the God of Israel, uh, in front of them. He hasn't come up to them plainly and said, Hi, I'm the Messiah. He's told his disciples, or at least let them work it out. He told a Samaritan woman. But these Jews, he hasn't spoken to them as plainly as they would like. Now, why do you think they want him to say plainly that he is the Messiah? Now, think about it. They've already decided that they want to put Jesus to death, haven't they? When they get really, really mad, they pick up stones to stone him. But when they're thinking with their brain, they know that's illegal. And so when they're thinking with their brain, instead of with their emotion, they know they're going to have to use the Romans to do the execution. And so they want a quote, a soundbite, something they can take to the Romans and say, this man says that he's the Messiah. That means he must be a rebel against Caesar. His claim that we saw earlier in, to be I am the God of Israel, that's, that's very upsetting for them as Jews, but quite useless to them politically. They're trying to go to the Romans and say, oh, this man claims to be our God, the God of Israel. I think we should have him put to death. The Romans will just laugh at them. It's our problem. But if they go to the Romans and say, this guy claims to be the Christ, the Messiah, the one who was prophesied, who would rescue Israel and rule as king, who, whose kingdom will spread to, to an entire world... Uh, I'll take things a little bit more seriously, especially if he does it on the anniversary of the liberation of Jerusalem from the Greeks by the Jewish rebels. Nearly 200 years beforehand. You see that? Come on, Jesus, they say. You Messiah, tell us that. You God's promised king is going to rule Israel. And Jesus is too smart to be caught by He answers in verse 25. I told you and you do not believe. He's already told them in lots of different ways. He's given them the proof. And in fact, he's given them the proof without even saying it. Verse 25 continues. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. He does the things that the Old Testament said would happen at the coming of the kingdom. He made the lame to walk. He made the blind to see. His works shout loud and clear, Messiah! But they don't believe. Why? Verse 26. You do not believe because you are not 
part of my thought. You do not believe because you are not part of my thought. If Jesus is the Messiah, if he is the King of Israel, then they are not part of the Israel that he is King of. Jesus is the Good Shepherd. We saw that last week. He's the one who laid down his life for his sheep. But who are his sheep? How do you tell his sheep? Well, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Remember the picture Jesus painted last week? Sheep pen. All different sheep in there. The shepherd comes. Calls the sheep. Come, 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 come. Calls them by name. Knows them. Walks off. And they follow him. And he says, Those who are mine, hear my voice and follow. You don't believe me because you are not one of my sheep. If you were, you would hear my voice and you will obey me. But you are not. And it's the ones who are my sheep, he says in verse 28, that have eternal life. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. They will be safe for all eternity if they are my sheep. In fact, he says in verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Uh, The security of the sheep is guaranteed by both Jesus and the Father. If you belong to Jesus, if you are one of his sheep, then you could not be more secure. No one can snatch you from Jesus' hands. No one can snatch you from the Father's hands. But if you are not one of the sheep, like these guys, not going to listen to Jesus. They didn't listen to him because they were his sheep. And he's been saying that no one can snatch you out of my hand, no one can snatch you out of my father's hand. And then he says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. What does Jesus mean when he says, I and the Father are one? And we talked about this at doctrine seminar for those who are there. Is he saying that they are really one person? Is he saying no one can snatch them out of his hand and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand? Because actually he is the Father. So it's the same hand. I and the Father are one. Is that what he's saying? Or is he saying they're one in purpose? Uh, Jesus won't let any of the sheep be snatched away. The Father won't let any of the sheep be snatched away. They are united. They stand together in their guarding of the sheep. Is that what he said? Or is there something else? Well, the Jews tend to think it's the first one, doesn't they? They, 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 they read it as a claim to be the same as the Father. And so in verse 31, Jews picked up the stones again to stone him. I want to kill him. Why? Because this is blasphemy. How can you claim to be the same as the Father? How can you? And Jesus answers them, verse 32, I have shown you many good works from the Father. 
For which of these are you going to stone me? And they answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Many times already Jesus claimed to be God. The ways that are clearer than this. So how does Jesus respond? Well, he does not deny that he is equal with God. At the same time, however, he is not the Father. And though it sounds like he is saying he is the Father, he is not actually saying that. What he's saying is, sounds blasphemous, but actually, it isn't. Sounds blasphemous, but it isn't. And so Jesus takes an example from the Old Testament which parallels this phenomenon. He's not saying it's the same thing. It's not the same thing as what he's going to talk about, but... Just like what he's just said, sounds blasphemous and isn't. Here's something else that sounds blasphemous. And it's 1034. It says, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? What's that about? What does it say, I said you are gods in the Old Testament? Well, do you remember? Yeah, it's Psalm 82, isn't it? From our Old Testament reading today. It's up on the screen in case you forgot it. And frankly, it's a very puzzling read. Were you puzzled when you read that? How does God call these rulers gods? They're not God. Furthermore, these, these are wicked rulers. They're unjust. They're, and the true God is calling them to account. And so what do you do with a passage you don't understand? Do you say, Ah, the Old Testament is blaspheming? Only God is God is calling these things God. Must must be wrong. Or do you say there must be something here I don't understand? I don't get it. I don't know who God's talking to. I don't know why He's calling them gods. I don't understand. I, I need to find out more. I trust the Bible is God's word, therefore it cannot be blasphemous. If there is an apparent problem, it's with my limited understanding rather than with the Bible. I can tell you, I don't understand Psalm 82. I know there are three main schools of thought about who God is referring to here. First of all, he's talking about the rulers of the nations. He calls them gods because they think they're gods, or they're considered gods because they do like God-like functions in, in being the rulers of their nation. Some people think he's talking about spiritual beings, spiritual rulers who have special responsibilities for particular nations. Or is he talking about, well, most of the rabbis in Jesus' day thought he was talking about Israel. Uh, Israel was meant to keep the law and show God's character to the world, and so they're called gods. And none of those things are without difficulty. You think about other options? Just think of one man, actually, if I want to bring that. Alright, I'll be happy to, happy to hear it. Come on. Out of those three, which do you think is most likely? Well, I don't know. In verse 35, Jesus says, that these gods are the ones to whom the word of God came, and the word of God certainly came to Israel, not necessarily to the rulers of the nation, and certainly not to the spiritual powers, unless, unless you're talking here about the word of God in this particular psalm, and then it can be any of the three, because it's addressed to whoever it is, and let's decide on other factors, and we don't really know, we don't really understand, I don't anyway, um, why God is using this language. 
But whoever he's addressing in the end, the, the point remains to say, it sounds blasphemous, but we know, as it's in the Bible, that, that it isn't really, is it? Now Jesus says in verse 35 and 36 of John chapter 10, he says, look, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated the center of this world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? You, you can't disagree with scripture. You can't say it's wrong. You can't say it's inappropriate. It's, it's God's word. It cannot be broken. And if you can say that about the scriptures because they're God's word, then how about doing that for Jesus? When Jesus said, I am the Son of God, that sounded blasphemous too. But just like you can't accuse the Bible of blaspheming because it's God's word, you can't accuse Jesus of blaspheming because he is God's Son. It sounds blasphemous to the monotheistic Jewish ear, just like it sounds blasphemous to the ears of our Muslim friends. But if they are Jesus' sheep, they would believe him. These people, they may not understand the Trinity, but they will know that it's not blasphemous. And that any problem there is with what Jesus has said is, is not because of Jesus, but because of their own limited understanding. If they were Jesus' sheep, they would trust that he's not being blasphemous. If they were Jesus' sheep, they would believe and believing they would come to understand. And in fact, as we've come to understand, we know that it isn't blasphemous, is it? It's actually right. Jesus is not saying he's the Father, he is the Son. Jesus is saying that he is the one that the Father consecrates to be sent into the world. That is, he's the only member of the Trinity who is set apart, who is consecrated to become human. And he claims to be the Son of God. Oh, that's because he is. He is equal to the Father, and yet he is different from the Father. The same person as the Father. There's no way they should condemn him for blaspheming. Because he's not. Even though it's their ears at first, the mother sounded like his ears. Furthermore, not only he claims to be the Son, he does the work of the Son. That is, he does all that the Father does. He shows himself to have come from the Father. He says in verse 37, he says, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. The fact that Jesus does the Father's work, that's what shows who he is. What he does is everything that the Father does. And it shows that their unity, well, it's not an identity of being. Jesus is not the Father. Yet it's more than just purpose. Jesus says at the end of verse 38, The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. There is a unity between Jesus and the Father in terms of a, of a unity of indwelling. So closely united are Jesus and the Father that, that each is inside the other. 
and that's expressed in a unity of purpose and will and action, but they're still differentiated in person. And yet upon the Son is still the Son and not the Father. There's the Father, there's the Son, they're not the same, but, but they are one. Why do we believe that? Because Jesus taught us. And we have seen his works. Oyer and John, over this year, that we know and understand that he is in the Father, and the Father is in him. Well, what happens then? Let's look at the outcome. At this point, the Jews are, are ready to arrest him again in verse 39. Once again, he's crossed the boundaries, and he escapes them. It's not his time yet. And where does he go? Well, verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. He, he takes things a full circle. He goes back to where he was back in chapter 1. Where John had been baptizing before he was arrested and then executed, where he was there pointing people to Jesus, and, and as Jesus ministered there in verse 41, many came to him. Many came to him. They said, John did no sign, but everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Interesting, this thing about John did no sign, is it? why is the Spirit putting it there? Why is he telling us about this? John, John had a remarkable ministry of calling people to Jesus, didn't he? And so when Jesus came, and came to that area, they said, yeah, yeah, everything this said about Jesus is true and we believe this Jesus and so different from the Jews in Jerusalem. And yet it says John did no sign. I don't mean, I don't mean signs to witness to Jesus. Jesus did signs they're meant to lead you to faith. You and I never to do, if you and I never do a single miracle that's okay. Oh, of course God does miracles for us hey that's even better isn't it? That's great. But we don't need to any more than John the Baptist did. What we need to do is faithfully point people to him and the legacy we leave behind when we die or when we move on to a different place is people believing. Not in us, but in Jesus. And you see, in Jerusalem, these Jews their hearts are hardened. They are not his sheep. He speaks. They don't want to come. And Jesus, he does have sheep, doesn't he? He goes to his other place. They come to him. And they follow him. Well, like I said, it's a short passage. Full of wonderful doctrine. At least four major doctrines I counted. Uh, I just want to go through them with you briefly. So you can remember them. Uh, as you go. First of all, there was the doctrine of predestination, wasn't it? What Jesus said to the Jews in verse 26, 27, you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep know my voice, hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Right? These Jews, they don't believe because they're not part of the flock. They're part of the flock. When the shepherd comes, they believe me. Friends, if you are someone who believes in Jesus, 
Don't congratulate yourself for being smarter or better than someone who doesn't. You chose him because the Father chose you. You are part of the flock that the Father gave to the Son. If the Father has given you to the Son, then you will hear the Son's voice and you will follow. That is predestination. And our response to the doctrine of predestination must be humility. Humility, because our salvation is completely and utterly by grace. We have nothing of ourselves to boast of before. And it should be gratefulness. We should be so thankful that the Father has given us to the Son. That was the Father's initiative. We don't understand it, but be grateful for it. It's a great and precious and undeserved privilege to be part of Jesus' work. Always be thankful. Never take it for granted. It also means that we can be confident as we, as we go out to proclaim the gospel. Because we carry the shepherd's voice. And, and those who are his sheep will listen and they will follow. So, so evangelize with confidence. But don't criticize yourself too much when some people, or indeed many people, don't listen. Don't get too upset when people accuse you of blaspheming God by saying he has a son. Don't get too down on yourself when people reject Christ. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. And he knew why. You do not believe because you are not part of my flock, he said. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. God's plan will be fulfilled. His sheep will come. Secondly, there's a doctrine of eternal security. Uh, we saw that in verse 28-29. He says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And the way actually verse 28 is written in the Greek is actually, it's particularly emphatic. It says, I give them eternal life. There is no, absolutely no way that any of them will perish. Cannot. And that's another great doctrine, isn't it? If we are in Christ, then we are secure. Rest secure in God's love. If you are His sheep, you have eternal life. You will not perish. There is no way you could ever go to hell if you belong to Jesus. Can't happen. There is no man or woman, angel or demon, who can overpower him and snatch you away from him. He's got you. Safe and secure in his loving hands. And he will keep you for all eternity. That is his promise. Now, some people say, oh, this must be a license to sin. You think you're safe and you can just go and do whatever you like. It can't be this Because if you are his sheep, you will listen to his voice and follow him. You say, oh, I don't think I want to follow the shepherd. I'm just going to wander around and, you know, do my own thing. Oh, that's not the attitude of the sheep. The promise of eternal security is to the shepherd's sheep. 
and the shepherd's sheep are eternally secure. And nothing can separate us from his life. Next, there was the doctrine of the word of God. The Jews at least had got that one right as far as the Old Testament was concerned. And, and Jesus shared with them this high view of the word of God. Jesus says in verse 35, the scripture cannot be broken. And so even when there are passages that are hard to understand, like, like Psalm 82, we cannot throw them away or dismiss them or, or say they are wrong. You can't say, oh look, I disagree with the psalmist. Because it's not just the words of the psalmist, it's the word of God. We need to be humble before God's word and accept our own limitations. And both Jesus and the Jews knew that and Jesus was trying to make them see that that should apply to his words as well. But that is, sometimes we, that is something we sometimes forget in our churches. There are times we hear people say, oh, I disagree with Paul about this or I disagree with James about that. And, but friends, we can't do that. That's, that's not on. The, the scriptures are not just the words of men, it is the word of God. God stands behind it. You are free to disagree with me all you like. Because I could be wrong in my understanding. It's okay to disagree with Andrew, but you cannot disagree with God. The Bible is the word of God, you cannot disagree with the Bible. Jesus said, Scripture cannot be broken. And finally, we've got something about the doctrine of the Trinity. We've seen before that Jesus is Yahweh, I am, the God of Israel. And today we've seen that he is one with the Father. That doesn't mean he's the same as the Father. It doesn't mean the Father and the Son are the same person in different modes. So we don't thank the Father for dying for us, that's a mistake. But the unity of the Father and the Son means the Son is in the Father and the Son and the Father is in the Son. You can't have one without the other. Uh, they mutually indwell one another. And this mutual indwelling means there is a perfect unity of will and purpose and activity between the Father and the Son. And not only is there that, but there always will be because that is the nature of their relationship. And so we must never pit one against the other. Just never say, oh, that's... You know, the father didn't want this, but we made the son did this, and we made the father want to do that. Always, always together. In everything they work together, and yet are distinct. The father sent the son to die for us. The son offered his life for the father as a sacrifice for us. It's all together. The father is the father. The son is the son. The Father and the Son. So, what do we learn today? Predestination is Jesus' sheep who follow him. Eternal security, no one can snatch us from Jesus. The Word of God, Scripture cannot be broken. If you've got a problem, it's with you, not with the Bible. Trinity, Father and the Son are distinct. Yeah, that's great. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many things that you teach us by your Spirit through your Word. And we thank you for uh, this 
record that your spirit has inspired the Apostle John to write for us of uh, these uh, things of your sons. Our Father, we thank you so much for him. We thank you that he's the one who does perfectly reveal you because you are in him and he is in you. We thank you that uh, um, as a father uh, and a son there is no disunity. We know that uh, uh, that you love us, uh, that you mutually endure with us uh, in the truth. They thank you that for our salvation you gave us, and your Son offered Himself uh, that we might be saved. We thank you so much. And we thank you uh, that you are teaching us to see who you are more clearly. The unity of being and the distinction of persons, uh, so that we might know you better. Therefore, we love you more. And Father, thank you for the, um, for the um, security that we have, because we know that uh, nothing can separate us from the And we know that no one or nothing uh, can snatch us out of your hands. We know that we are secure you. Thank you so much. Uh, because there's so many things out there, so many things that uh, distract us, and we pray that you help us. We pray that you keep us. We pray that you will hold us to our lives. And we pray, and we give you thanks, Heavenly Father, that uh, you have been so kind as to give us to your Son, that you have given us to your Son to be his true and his true so that we can hear his voice uh, as it comes to us in the gospel. Uh, and we pray, Heavenly Father, that you help us uh, as we uh, carry this message to us, as we speak of the gospel of Jesus. And we pray that your spirit will also be calling other sheep and give them part of this news. So help us to do that with confidence, uh, knowing that you are at work, uh, and knowing uh, that your sheep are with us. And Father, we thank you for the scriptures. And we thank you that the word of God cannot be broken. And we thank you that you have given us a sure and solid foundation for our faith. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you help us to always come before your scriptures with a humility that is appropriate as we come before the word of the Lord. Help us to, to, to trust you, uh, even, uh, even in the areas where we don't understand. In the areas we find hard to accept, I to trust you to know that you are good uh, and that what you say is right and true and best. Uh, we, we acknowledge that there are, there are many things that we don't understand and some things that we will put wrong, uh, but we know that the fault with us will be the Lord. So you pray as you help us. And uh, yeah, so we thank you, Lord, uh, for Jesus. Uh, we thank you for his perfect life. We thank you for his death on the cross. Uh, we thank you that he is the bishop who laid down his life for us, his sheep, that we can be forgiven and be with you, safe and secure. Uh, we pray these things. Be safe and we are.